This is Someone Like Me, in Slavery Tennessee's podcast working to educate listeners about the realities of human trafficking and empower survivors of this crime by telling their stories, both through interview and interweaving their voice throughout all of our conversations. I'm Leslie, your host. For our last episode of season two, we're sharing never-before-heard clips from conversations this season. Each guest we had on was asked the question, do you remember a moment of light that changed the way you see the issue of human trafficking? The answers are as diverse as the guests we had as a part of this season. So why is it important that we asked this question? Because combating this crime is about understanding it first, which begets new insight and undoubtedly brings motivation to do things differently because of it. The key to rewriting the narrative about human trafficking starts with understanding, leading to change. The first five moments of light are from our CEO, Margie Quinn, and her former partner at the TBI, Jason Wilkerson, followed by survivor, Centoya Brown-Long, and then Epic Girl founder, Stacia Freeman. Finally, we'll hear from Assistant District Attorney, Sarah Wolfson. I talk so much about that singular moment where she says someone like me, and it really did. Like, if you have to pin me down and say what one thing changed it all for you, it was that. It was that one singular statement by her. But there were other things that happened along the way that really started me down the path of righteousness that made me think, this is something I can't walk away from. This is something I can't pretend like doesn't exist. And when you've worked on this for the better part of 11, 12 years, right here, you know, right here in Tennessee or right here in Middle Tennessee, and I have been so fortunate to work on both sides of the issue now, on the enforcement side and now on the victim services side. I talked about what that chief said to me, and I have repeated that hundreds of times. So clearly it made a tremendous impact on me when he said, you know, back in the day, we used to just call that whoring. And it was, it was like a knife to the heart, partly because back in the day, maybe that's what I would have called it too. You know, I, I'm not letting myself off the hook here. There has to be an evolution of feeling and thought for all of us around a lot of different issues. And when I would go out and talk to law enforcement and talk to them about the way these juveniles act, the way they come across, the affect that they have or lack thereof, you know, it really took working in this a long time to think, you know what, if I had had happen to me, the things that they have had happen to them, I would act that way too. And so I think it's been around the issue of the juveniles that I have Really, it was an eye-opening, you know, when you're watching a forensic interview of a six-year-old or a juvenile walks into your undercover operation because she's been delivered to you for $500 and she looks really young and she's an endangered runaway from out of state. Those are all, I think, really singular moments that flash through my head when I think about my own personal thought evolution about the issue of trafficking. Talk about a knife to the heart. When I think about 
I had a case where I had to go interview a woman who was in jail. She'd been arrested for prostitution. She was in jail, but she was had been one of a number of girls that a particular pimp was running. One of the girls that the pimp was running was a girl, was a juvenile. So I go talk to, again, the other woman that was working. She was in jail. They go, they get her out of the cell, and they put her off in this little side room where we go interview. And I sit them down, I'm like, look, I know you're here, I know you've been arrested. I don't care about you. I'm not here for you. I'm not here to get you in more trouble. I know you've got all kind of charges, prostitution charges, dope charges, this, that, and other. But I also know you ran with this guy. I know that this guy was your pimp, and I know other girls are too. I'm particularly interested in this girl right here because she's a minor and she's still out there. That's what I'm here for. Don't care about you. Don't care about your charges. Not here to talk to you about your charges, anything like that. And she said something that was probably one of the most hurtful things I've heard in law enforcement and in this day and age in law enforcement that says a lot. She said, where were you at when I was a teenager? You come here wanting to help now? You come here, Mr. TBI man, and I'm here and I've got these felonies on my record. I'm drug addicted. I can never get a job. I'm drug addicted. I'm going to be in jail for goodness knows how long. Where were you at when my mother was trading me for rent money? Where were you at then when I was getting passed around from one foster home to another to another? Where were you at when I was having to work truck stops for this other pimp when I was a teenager? Now you show up and you want to help? And the reason it hurt is because I'm not used to feeling like a failure. I'm not used to feeling like I failed somebody. And what she was highlighting was the failure that law enforcement and society has has done for over the past. And there was nothing I could say. You know, I, I, I'm not here for you. Okay. You know, yes, I can give you these numbers and this, that, and the other, but she very clearly considered herself too far gone. We failed so many for so long, just like 30 years ago when we drove away from that trailer out there on Possum Bottom Road or wherever it was, when we drove away from that domestic situation, knowing good and heck well when my crown Vic got out of the driveway, she's going to get it again. We knew that in those domestic situations, but we drove away from those. We failed them. And for so long, we've failed trafficking victims when we just said, oh, great, you know, we go in that hotel where there's a 15-year-old and a trash can full of used condoms, you know, pick her up and lock her up in juvie. She's a runaway. Don't ask any questions. Go on to the next one. That was a failure. And that's what that was. She reminded me of that failure. We're healing. We're all in the process of healing from those failures. And we are healing from those failures. And we're making those moments and we're telling those moments here so that other people can say I want to be part of the solution to a system that failed we're not going to do that anymore right so and that's thank what, you the and vulnerability is perfect and that's what drives me to go out and get the next one yeah. to make sure that hey I don't ever want to be in a situation where someone says hey no one was there for me I remember the moment and it really had to do with I asked God all this time ago to set me free and I tell the world about him, but I really thought he wasn't listening, but like he was just like, hold on, I got it. I'm gonna do it in a way that not only can you see freedom, but you can help bring freedom to so many other people. 
And it was like, wow. Like there was a purpose in this all along. Like he knew what he was doing all along because now I'm walking out of prison with the opportunity to really just take everything that had happened to me and help it to bring freedom to other girls. Because I believe all human life has value and that our life is about giving away our life for the sake of other people. I think that's the whole purpose of the reason that we're here. And I'm grateful for everyone that poured into me and as a responsibility to them in appreciation for their belief and empowerment in my life, I want to pay that forward. You know, so I think it's constantly going back to like, I'm so patient with teenagers because I was a terrible teenager. And I really, really can relate to, you know, I wanted to run away. My family moved when I was in ninth grade and I cooked it up. I figured out how I was going to run away. I mean, I just remember feeling very alone, being in a new place, in a new state. And I had adults that showed up for me in that space and really saved me. So I'm grateful. And that made me always want to do something in this realm for other girls so that they can find their voice so that they too can pay it forward. For me, this has actually been a really interesting career development because in law school, I was actually very interested in human trafficking legislation. A lot of things were changing regarding especially Backpage and the access to those kinds of websites while I was in law school. And I was really privileged to have a professor who actually taught a human trafficking class in law school. So that was my first moment. And one of the things that I studied with her was that intersectionality between culpability and victimhood in trafficking. Many of these survivors have been trafficked themselves, but then at some point become what we would call a bottom girl for their trafficker and end up maybe trafficking others. So I think the moment for me was recognizing, you know, in my legal career that I could face times where culpability really wasn't clear. And trafficking is one of those things. And then as I started actually practicing, it became abundantly clear to me that trafficking is not what I thought it was. It's not an issue that's happening abroad. It's happening right here and in so many different ways. So I think the first couple of times that I saw these cases come forward where I knew that based on the law, this is trafficking, but trying to convince others that this is the story in the face of trafficking here in our backyard was such an uphill climb. And that was sort of my moment of dedication to doing that, to making sure that our community is aware of what human trafficking looks like, that we're honoring victims and survivors of all kinds, not just ones who have stories that are palatable to other people. So for me, that's my moment is to honor all survivors and their stories. Yeah, you said culpability. And so that means, I'm just clarifying, that the person actually committed a crime, but because of all the circumstances that they were forced to engage, that that crime defined them rather than the fact that they were sort of forced into those situations. Exactly. And teasing all that out is pretty tough to do, I can imagine. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that our Cherished Hearts Court helps to address because we are honoring the fact that this person is a survivor in their own right of a very serious trauma, but at the same time understanding that they've also committed a crime and are criminally involved 
But again, we're somewhere in that grayscale of victimhood and culpability. So that's why I love working with the Cherish Hearts Court because we specifically address that gray area. When hearing about the reality of human trafficking, not the sensationalized version that so often gets presented on social media, in movies, music, television, and even the news, it can send shockwaves, and it often inspires action. The more someone learns about this complex issue, the more they may wonder about exactly what is the best way to help. The next few moments of light suggest frameworks for consideration, starting with our director of survivor care, Kelsey Mize, Brentwood Detective Adrian Breedlove, Branded Collective's Lauren Carpenter, and workers from Bethany Christian Services Foster Care Program. So when I was in college, I got the opportunity to go to Cambodia. It was kind of an educational trip to learn about human trafficking, to learn about the genocide that happened there, to learn about different nonprofits that were already working there. And I remember coming back and just being crushed. Like, I have to go there. I have to live there. I'm going to become a social worker in Cambodia, and I'm going to, you know, change the world. And it kind of hit me of, you know what? I can't learn the language. I mean, I was there for a month, and I couldn't learn a single word. And then the more I studied and the more I learned about social work, the more I realized that it was important for social workers in Cambodia to kind of rise up and to work with the women there. And my heart kind of was crushed of like, okay, this is where I felt God was calling me. This is what I felt like I needed to do. And I thought my dream was over and moved to Nashville, started working with another nonprofit, working with kids who had different mental illnesses. And it was there when I started learning that human trafficking was happening here in our backyard and started seeing billboards for enslavery and just knew like, okay, this is where I'm supposed to be. And so I applied and that was kind of my moment of like, I thought that going to Cambodia, that that was supposed to be it. That's supposed to be where my life was going. And really, it was the catalyst for doing the work here. You know, there is an idea that goes around in some circles that I've been a part of at Belmont University, talking about some of these mission trips and being responsible when we go into other cultures. And I wonder if you have thought about this and what kind of things have you experienced in this way? I have thought a lot about this. You know, now that I have an education in social work, looking back at some of the trips that I've taken or just the different outreach events that we did, I can see how harmful some of that would have been. Picking up kids and posing for pictures with them and putting them on social media and showing off, you know, look how great of a person I am. I'm going into this community. I'm going into this city. I'm going to this place that nobody wants to go. And look what I'm doing. Or taking pictures of people in their homes, which, you know, at the time I'm like, I want to show people this poverty and this despair that they're living in. But yet I'm advertising their home as like, look how bad this is. Like this is the place that they live every single day. And I'm advertising their trauma and their experiences without any context, without any permission, without any say from them, without them getting to speak their story or say how they feel or how they're experiencing. And just learning of the different trauma that we could have caused through the attachment of constantly coming into contact with these kids at these orphanages or kids camps where you're coming into contact for a short period of time, building these strong relationships and then leaving and how harmful that could be for them of not being able to build these long lasting relationships or constantly feeling like they have to act a certain way or present in a certain way to get attention from 
this middle-aged white woman who's coming in and showering them with gifts or other prizes for a picture. Yeah, and that reminds me so much of how we do trauma-informed work here at Enslavery, even in this podcast that we've talked about, all of these issues. And I think it's about not exploiting people. And it seems pretty poignant, you know, when you think about that picture of your youth and when you were doing this um, and you weren't aware. But now it's so beautiful how you have made that learning and that growth part of what you do at Enslavery Tennessee. And we're still teaching people that same thing. You know, you don't have to go to Cambodia to do that same dynamic. That happens right here. People want to come and think about how great they are when they when they support this cause. And I think we've talked about it. The heart is correct. But you really have to build the relationship, take the time and dig in deep to really make a difference. Absolutely. And I think that it is a lot harder to get somebody to maybe buy into a cause when you're not using those exploitative pictures or you're not using those stories depicting somebody's trauma and going in depth on that. It can be harder. You have to be a lot more creative. It's a lot easier to show a survivor's face and say, look what she's gone through. Obviously, you want to give money. And having to realize that that could be exploitative. And so how can we get people to be invested and involved in a way that's not harmful? And how can we implement things to make sure that we are protecting that survivor and her story and all that we do? Yeah, I like that you said we would be exploiting the public if we put up these really emotional pictures that would cause an emotional response and we asked the public for money. We would be part of the problem too. So that's a very interesting point you bring up. Thank you for saying that. I have a friend a very, very dear friend of mine uh, who I've known since high school. Uh, We were friends in high school. We were friends in college. We were just really, really close friends. And she's been through this. I mean, we're the same age. I'm almost 50 years old, and so is she. I think we're like a few days apart. She's currently living this life. She is currently rebuilding her life again. You know, it's amazing to see the things that she's doing now. It really is. So, like I said... I had this friend, she was funny, smart, and she had the biggest smile in Tennessee. She got in some trouble, and she went to prison for a while. And after prison, she ended up on the streets of several cities working as a prostitute. She was actually kidnapped and trafficked. At that time, she didn't even know that word existed. She didn't know that that was what was happening to her. She had no clue. And I think that resonates with a lot of trafficking victims. They have no clue that they're, that it's even happening to them. They just think that this is what's going on to support their drug habit. But she endured some really horrible things that nobody deserves and nobody should ever go through. She eventually found her way into a good program that helped her stop using drugs and start living again. We reconnected about 12 years ago or so, and she shared some of her story with me at that point. And it changed the way that I, I see people in general and made me a much more compassionate towards prostitutes and trafficking victims. We've kept in touch since then, and I've seen her struggle through her trauma addiction because, again, the addiction is a symptom of the trauma. But addiction and trauma, it rips people to shreds, and it definitely ripped her to shreds. And it takes a whole lot of pain and work to put those pieces back together. I'm really proud of the way she's persevered, and she's kept working daily to be the wonderful and beautiful person she is. I just I smile thinking about her because her smile is as big as this room. But there was the darkness that was always there. And 
the things that initially started out as ways to cope with those trauma of her childhood and things that she did to just get through the day ended up being what led her to be a victim of, like I said, some very horrific things, very horrific things that I wouldn't wish upon anybody. But thankfully now she is in a really good place. She is going through a whole lot of stuff right now, a lot of good counseling, a lot of stuff that's working through and working all the way back through that. And if it can happen to her, you know, my friend that I was with daily, and I never knew, if it can happen to her, it can happen to anybody. So, you know, when I see the young lady, you know, like Lacey, you know, I see her. If somebody could have reached her and planted that seed or done something at that point to help her get out, that could have saved her 20 years or more of hardship. So that's why I'm passionate about it, because when something affects you personally or somebody that you love personally, then it's real. It's no longer a statistic. And this is not a statistic thing. This is a person thing. And that's who we have to look at is the people involved. The word that comes to mind for me is humanizing. Yes. And... I think it's particularly poignant when talking to a police officer because there's a lot of conversation about humanizing the badge. You know, when you understand the complexities of that role and that job, it's a little easier to have a heart for and an empathy for that person. And the same thing is true with this issue of trafficking victims and trauma and addicts and prostitution is if we can humanize them. And that's part of actually what this show aims to do, Mm -hmm. is we want to humanize these people so it's not just a statistic. It's not just someone who shows up on some article somewhere that you can read and feel sad about for a second. These are real people. And that's a big thing is it's real people, but you asked earlier, what can somebody do? Besides reaching out to her right now, at the hotel room or whatever, reach out to the person that you see in elementary school. Hey, this little girl or this little boy, we know something's going on because that's where it starts. It doesn't start in a hotel room when they're in their early 20s or late teens. It starts when they're five, six, 10 years old at home. So if you see something going on or you suspect something going on, tell somebody. Just reach out and tell somebody because that's what you could avoid decades of pain, shame, and problems just by helping somebody when they're young. Lauren, as you think about your experience working with survivors, was there a time that you had a moment of understanding or maybe a moment of light coming through that all of a sudden you understood something differently? Can you talk about maybe a moment that that occurred for you? Yes. When we started in 2012, we were not employing survivors. We were donating funds to End Slavery Tennessee. And we didn't start employing survivors until 2015. So while we had raised awareness about trafficking and really talked about it a lot, I had never actually worked with a survivor. 
And I think that light bulb moment for me was going into the Enslavery Tennessee office and sitting down with two survivors on mm-hmm. the floor of the Enslavery Tennessee <laughs> office on the old carpet <laughs> and with our hammer and our stamping pads and really just working together and learning about them personally and learning about where they were. And I think I was very naive before I met a survivor in thinking that perhaps once they're rescued, they're ready to move on and move forward in their lives. And I think it's much more complex than that. It's a lot harder for them to move forward without kind of being pulled back into the ways that they've come from, which for many of us, it makes sense when you think about it. But I think I was just under this impression that, oh, this is such a terrible thing they'd want to escape from. But it's so much more complex than that. Yeah, people do have the perception of that when it's rescue, it's done. Yay. It's just <laughs> the celebrates. <laughs> it absolutely is just the beginning. Probably about five or six years ago in grad school and kind of figuring out what I wanted to do with my life. <laughs> and I had heard a talk. There's an organization, America's Kids Belong. I don't know if you know Tennessee Kids Belong. And America's Kids Belong is like the umbrella. And I heard a talk from the founders and they you know, help kids in foster care and adopt kids who are ready for adoption and our work together with churches and businesses and creatives to promote that. So I heard them speak um, at an event, and then I actually got to meet them in person like six months later. They had been foster parents themselves, and just hearing their heart for children was honestly just really inspiring for me. That honestly kind of sparked the idea to want to get involved with foster care, whether that's you know eventually becoming a foster parent, working for a foster care agency, or actually a few years ago I had the opportunity to mentor a girl in foster care for about a year and a half, which was really awesome. So I, I would say that was my moment. And my sister and brother and all are actually foster parents, so in down in Florida. So that's really inspiring too. I get to see it, you know, firsthand, and they do a great job <laughs> at that. It of course is challenging, but it's they love it. I found my passion while I was taking my social work courses. I started to understand more about who I was and how it aligned just with social work values and the work you can do as a social worker. So, for example, just the inherent dignity and worth that each human being has, the importance of human relationships, looking at things through a strengths perspective. What what can we build upon that people already have? How can we help give them like a hand up instead of a handout sort of thing? And I just really identified with all those things like the positive outlook on life, helping people, connecting with people. And I've always been attracted to like the nitty gritty, like the darker places of this world where people need help. And I truly think that foster care, the system, broken families and things like that, that is probably one of the darkest parts of our world. So I think I just had a a heart and a passion for it that I just really discovered throughout college. I love Mother Teresa. Mm -hmm. She's just my favorite. Ever since I was young, I was Mm -hmm. just drawn to her. So funny, I was reading her biography. We have the same birthday. I was like, oh, you do not. And she's an Enneagram 9 also. (laughs) Did she take Uh, the test? (laughs) Yeah. That's one of the ones that they say she, you know, she can. But she has that quote that says, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. Mm -hmm. And I think being a foster parent being a parent mm-hmm. is just such a huge responsibility and it, it might not feel like you're making a big difference but I absolutely believe that that is where it all starts so I think it's great that you guys are working in that industry finally it's important to keep learning keep listening and as you do this you'll be inspired 
Listen to Nashville's human trafficking court judge, Anna Escobar, followed by Trish, a survivor and advocate, talk about continuing to learn and listen. Well, I've only been working with cherished hearts for a year. I've always been very passionate about the prevention of human trafficking. However, I had not met human trafficking survivors. And working with these participants is the most rewarding, heartbreaking, (laughs) soul-crushing, and happy thing I ever do. And I love it, love it, love it. I went to a conference in D.C. that taught me a lot about recovery and trauma. Um, Naively, I used to think, yeah, you go to treatment, you're done, you're fixed, you know. Not only is a recovery such a complicated animal, but also when you work with a human trafficking survivor, it is domestic violence, it's child abuse, it's maybe a rape in there. I mean, there's just so many layers. And for me, the moment is when a participant is finally able to reunite with their children, with their mother, with their grandmother, after years of not being able to be part of the family unit, where the trust between the participant and the family has been regained. And I think that's when we come to success. And so my hope, and I pray every night for these participants, that they may have that moment and seeing that moment is just a beautiful thing. And that's really what this is all about. Yeah, it's so nice to hear that from you and think about a court system that I have a hard time imagining doing this kind of work. It is ideal in my mind, and I really respect that you're engaged in that, so thank you so much. Well, thank you. I mean, it's it's been a privilege to work with these ladies. I admire how hard they work. They make me appreciate what I've been given in my life and I use them as my model because they persevere, they wake up every day, and they try their hardest. And if they can do it, so can I. So they really inspire me a lot. And I told you all, I've learned a lot in one year, and I hope that I can continue doing this job and and keep learning, because I don't think we'll ever know everything, right? Um, And that's what I truly love about this job. Once I experienced recovery for myself, I want it for everybody because it's so hurtful when you're lost and alone in a world of drugs and addiction and trafficking and prostitution and abandonment and low self-esteem. It's just, it makes sense that I would do that with my children that I've adopted and with any survivor that's trying to change their life. Please let me share this information with you like this works. The team at the Someone Like Me podcast hope that as you've been listening to this show, you've experienced your own moments of light, maybe even from hearing a story on this podcast. Maybe you've experienced a moment when a new understanding or perspective became a turning point, the kind of turning point that starts you on a journey to join in the efforts to be a part of healing and transformation in our anti-trafficking community. Thank you.
Be sure to stay up to date with everything In Slavery Tennessee is doing, including the annual gala this fall to be held at the Loveless Barn in Nashville, Tennessee. You can see all upcoming events at enslaverytn.org. In Slavery Tennessee thanks the Jones Legacy Group for their continued support of someone like me. Our production staff is Gregory Byerline, Stacy Elliott, and Marissa Brunell. Claire Bidegary Curtis is our engineer, and original music is by Zach and Maggie White. I'm Leslie Eiler Thompson. Thank you for listening. <laughs>